Hi there, I'm Austin Hopkins. And I'm Haley Robinson. And this is the Wild Idaho Podcast, coming to you from the Idaho Conservation League. The Idaho Conservation League is Idaho's leading voice for conservation, protecting the air you breathe, the water you drink, and the land you love. Each month, we'll be exploring a new topic or current event that impacts the environment in Idaho. Join us to learn about the work that we're doing and how you can get involved. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everyone, to the Wild Idaho Podcast. I am Austin Hopkins, joined, as always, by my co-host, Haley Robinson. Hi, Wild Idaho listeners. And we are back again with John Robison, ICL's public lands director um, and kind of connoisseur. Is that... Uh, like, what's... what's Connoisseur of mining? What should I... Oh, golly. <laughs> oh, that's like kind of a rough one. Uh, how about... Um, actually, uh, I'm a big fan of wild rivers and clean water. Okay. And uh, and that actually makes it a little bit hard to it makes you a, 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 an advocate for being involved in mining issues uh, because uh, one of the uh, first uh, and lasting actually impacts of poorly managed or developed or uh, reclaimed mines uh, are is clean water in in the rivers uh, that uh, flow out downstream of these areas. So I'd say I'm a big fan of clean water and wild rivers. And, um, and you notice, if you're a fan of those, these places, uh, you notice when a mine goes in. Hmm. That's a very well put. Um, nicely done. So we, we are here today for part two of our podcast on Minus Gold, uh, a proposed mine going up in uh, the Stibnite area, kind of by McCall in central Idaho. So I'm going to let our listeners know if you're just joining in for the first time listening into the Wild Idaho podcast. Like I said, this is part two, so go ahead and pause this episode, and I want you to go find part one on Midas Gold, where we talk a lot about the history of the area, some of the water quality, some of the aquatic habitat, and, and, and what's at stake with um, some of the, the plans for this area. So if you haven't heard that episode, go check that out, then listen to this one. Jumping into this one... JR, like I said, the last episode we covered the history of the area. We got some great input from, from local stakeholders. So bringing us up to speed, it's it's early 2019. Uh, where are we right now with Minus? Let's open the podcast there and just give the, the 30,000 foot view. Right. Um, and of course, uh, the Forest Service is still recovering from the uh, partial uh, federal context. shutdown, the, mm. the furlough. Although uh, AECOM, the company that has been contracting the uh, permitting work, you know, still plugging away, but there's some uh, time lost there. Um, so right now we're looking at a draft environmental impact statement uh, for the full mine. Uh, we'll be out at the late summer is what it's looking at right now. And that will be available for a public review and it'll describe um, uh, various alternatives for um, trying to avoid and minimize uh, the impacts of the mine while still allowing the mine to uh, go through. Uh, this is for three open pits uh, uh, with uh, waste rock uh, uh, backfilling the creeks up there and a, a massive tailings dam uh, up in the headwaters of, of Meadow Creek. So this is for the full middle deal. This is not a drill. This is actually the m- approval for the mine plan. And can you remind our listeners what the mine is mining for? No, great. Um, great question. Um, the main uh, 
goal or main attraction, the shiny object in this case, is gold. Um, and there's some antimony in there as well, which has some uh, special properties, and there's been uh, folks trying to make the case that it's a strategic mineral and we need to get this out. But really, it's a, it's a gold mine that's paying for, uh, uh, that's the real value that folks, and there's some side benefits from some antimony and some things like that. Uh, but really, it's a gold mine. And I have kind of another follow-up question. For some of the mining projects we've been talking about lately, you know, there's different processes where they, the mining company might apply to the Forest Service and do some exploratory drilling to see if things are there right. and if they want to proceed. Right. And so for this one, it sounds like they already know there's gold and there's antimony and they're going for it. And um, like you were saying, they're in the application phase where they're doing the environmental impact statement. And then the next process is if it gets approved by the Forest Service, then they start digging, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a number of uh, federal and state permits they have to get, um, but there's also a uh, uh, – those are all kind of being lined up as well. But that's a great point in that a lot of the mining projects that ICEL members and, and uh, uh, that Idahoans have heard of are just exploration. Um, so for example, the Kumo Project – up in the headwaters of the Boise River. Um, right now, there's a comet period out for exploration with 10 miles of temp roads and 157 drill pads. Uh, but that's just exploration. That's just to delineate the, the ore body. Um, twice now, the federal court deemed that, whoa, the Forest Service had, had skipped some important steps and uh, had them uh, redo the analysis and, and open it back up for public review. Likewise, um, ICL and the Greater Yellowstone Coalition are um, in uh, litigating the Forest Service over on the Caribou Targhee for what we feel is, is fast-tracking the approval of a mine exploration project for the Kilgore project uh, out in the Centennial Mountains. So that's just exploration about similar scale of Kumo, about 10 miles of roads. Um, so even roads and drill pads can have significant uh, environmental effects, uh, so much so that the judge will, will tell the Forest Service, no, you have to redo this. You actually have to take this seriously. Um, so we have, um, are scrutinizing a number of projects out there. The Stibnet project, though, is several years past that point, and they believe they've delineated the ore body enough to make a go of it. They know where they want to start. They have some sequencing going on. Uh, so they're hoping to get approval, uh, you know, as, as fast as possible, but also um, they're going to continue to do additional exploration up there as part of mine development. Um, one of the, the things that, um, uh, creative things that, that uh, Midas Gold, the Canadian mining company, has done up there is, is really highlighted the restoration components of the project. Um, and... I would say, um, well, highlighting that. I'll just leave it at that, highlighting those um, and saying we're going to restore the site, which is great. We'd love to hear mining companies say they're going to restore the site. Um, but when we look at the footprint up there, there's a lot more disturbance than restoration going on. But even if uh, things go completely according to plan up there and you have a, uh, you know, an approved um, mine reclamation or restoration plan up there, um, with this additional exploration drilling that's going to be happening at Sibnite really throws a lot of uncertainty out there in terms of when the restoration is actually going to get done. 
Um, now, this is assuming it's good restoration and it's actually a, an environmental positive. Um, the case could go on where they find um, uh, additional gold deposits. They want to create additional pits and additional tailings deposits and uh, waste rock piles. And you could have uh, mining going on there far than the much longer than the 14 years anticipated. Um, could go on potentially for decades. Uh, and that doesn't even include the, um, you know, a suspension of operations if, if uh, the price of gold drops and they have to, you know, put it in mothballs for a while. So Midas has been creating a very compelling case to many about we're going to leave the, the river better than we found it. And it certainly has some, some, some uh, uh, work to be done there. But in terms of it being done in, in 14 years or 20 years or so, that's very uncertain. And it might be decades later uh, that that actual restoration work uh, ever gets done. Um, and the last thing on that is even if uh, Midas Gold does uh, uh, get permitted now and they do a fantastic job, uh, better than, than, than uh, um, uh, expected and things go great, um, and they restore the site, there's nothing right now that would prevent another mining company from going in there and digging up all the restoration work and putting all that, uh, 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 undoing all that work uh, as they go into another mining phase. I, I wanted to ask about that because I think, and this is kind of a teaser, what we're, a little bit of what we're going to talk about later in the episode, but you know, my understanding is Midas is coming in here, and, and for our listeners, I want to point out that I think we use the term Midas and Stibnite interchangeably. Mm -hmm. Stibnite's the location and Midas is the company. Right. So, so just if, for folks keeping along audibly, um, that's hopefully that's not too confusing. But, but Midas, referencing the same project. Yeah, yeah and, they, and they re Midas and Stibnite are the same project. Um, but Midas, one of their, their pitches is, you know, there's new technology. This area has been mined before. We heard about this in the last episode. But they have new technology. And, and part of their proposal is to rework some existing uh, tailings. And what scares me is, well, 100 years from now, we could have some super-duper, you know, refined technology that says Midas was, you know, that was elementary. Like, we're going to... We're ready for the varsity level, and, and we have this crazy machine. Like then it, it comes and gets reworked again, and, and like you just said, there's nothing preventing that from happening. So it's it's kind of scary to think about. Well, in some cases, um, you know, if you were looking into mineral production and you have a ore body that's unlimited at depth, it keeps going down, and that might be the case from an industrial perspective where you want to keep that, you know perpetually available and you want to say hey we'll keep digging 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 and if someone needs something else they go to this site and they go to the site um and that you know works well in your you know local borrow pit or, or you know uh uh you know someplace that has uh it's kind of regarded as a sacrifice zone mm -hmm. but this area uh at the headwaters of the south fork of the salmon is such a special place uh both from a recreational perspective from a salmon perspective, this is the best remaining uh, quality habitat uh, in uh, on the South Fork salmon and the, the Middle Fork salmon in the entire Columbia River. Uh, it's really a fantastic spot, and it's uh, if any mining goes on there, uh, and I'm not sure it should. If any mining goes on there, you kind of want to get in and get out quickly 
and really patch things up well and tie a nice bow on it and tiptoe away mm-hmm. um, as opposed to uh, having a master plan for bigger and deeper and bigger and deeper. Because uh, all of those mining operations, uh, because it's a mineralized zone, um, uh, raise the risks for a spill of contaminants either from the mining processes uh, or from uh, a material that is leaches off-site uh, that naturally occurs but is now mobilized because of the mining operation. So again, this is an area where you really want to tiptoe around and it might be a get in, get out, you know, leave well enough alone. Um, uh, you know, do what you can to patch things up, but you really don't want to be making a bigger uh, uh, raise the risk over there, given the critical importance of that watershed for um, you know both recreation and fisheries and just quality of life of folks who, who really love that river. So I have a question about um, environmental impact statement process. And I yes. don't mean to get too into the weeds for our listeners, but I think it's helpful to consider this process a little bit. So when, when a mining company wants to mine in an area, they have to prepare an environmental impact statement that they submit to the Forest Service or the Forest Service helps them prepare that statement. Right. Like, what is the process for right. that and who approves it and who gets picked and who doesn't? Right. And so this is a, a great question. And this is, happens, uh, this whole uh, environmental permitting uh, happens uh, accepting public opinion and public uh, um, uh, recommendations and suggestions happens on public land, so Forest Service and BLM land. If it's private property or state land, there is uh, those aren't those same opportunities. So because basically, not just Idahoans, but all Americans really own these lands, um, we get a say uh, in how the mineral development happens there. The Forest Service is the permitting agency. And so they are uh, the main permitting agency. So they are the ones that are uh, kind of receive the application, say, well, it's good enough, not good enough, there's more details. Um, and then they have a pretty strict mandate under the Mining Law of 1872 to authorize mineral exploration and development. They can put some sideboards on it saying, no, you can't do this. This is, you know, uh, you can't store your waste, you know, dug your waste right in the river. You can't do this and that. Um, and so they can, uh, um, you know, put some direction on there, but they cannot um, uh, impair the project from uh, uh, being developed. They can't actually put any uh, unreasonable sideboards that would prevent development of the project. Um, to, point, uh, to this point, um, the uh, Forest Service uh, really has to, uh, um, they take the mining company's proposed action. This is their plan, that, that, that what they want to do up there. And so they look at it and go, wow, that's, um, okay, that's good. Have you thought about this or this or this? Um, and so what they'll do is from the Forest Service's discussion with the specialist, uh, from the feedback they get from the public during the scoping process and all these things, they'll say, you know, have you thought about this alternative? Uh, it gets the same goal, but it might have less of an impact in one resource. And so um, what you'll have is a, a series of alternatives that come that uh, um, the forest will put out there. 
And that's what we're expecting to get this at the end of the summer is a draft environmental impact statement with a number of alternatives. What if you do it this way or this way or this way? Um, and then they compare the results of those and then pick one. Now, what's really interesting under this uh, environmental uh, impact statement is they actually don't have to pick the one that's most environmentally responsible or that is most protective of fisheries or of public health or things like that. They can say, yeah, that would be alternative three. That's most protective. We're picking this one. Um, and they don't actually have to minimize the risks. And when you say All, they, you mean the forest, the forest services service, yeah. they're evaluating? Yeah, this? they can pick this one. They don't actually have to minimize the risks. They just have to disclose the risks. And so they might say, yes, we're picking this, this, this alternative over here. And there are increased risks of landslides, heavy metal contamination, or uh, what have you because of, of this alternative, we're going to try to avoid and minimize and mitigate for these risks this way, but that's what we're going for. So it's very much at the point where um, uh, the, it's important to, for the public uh, to be engaged and put ideas out there and say, ask the what if questions. Um, but really the environmental impact statement, all it's gonna tell you really is, uh, it'll disclose the impacts, but there isn't any guarantee that the impacts will actually be um, uh, acceptable in, in some ways from a, a fisheries or water quality standpoint. And what guides the Forest Service on to, like deciding which plan to go with? Because my assumption would be, although it sounds not right, that they would always go for the one that would protect the forest because they work for the Forest Service. So what, what would lead them to pick a different option? Um, there is a... Um, uh, it's part of it is the economics for mineral development. If you say um, you can go ahead and uh, mine there, but you have to use it's kind of like you know Monty Python the Holy Girl. You have to use a herring, you know. You have to use a spoon. It's like well that's not reasonable, you know. Well it'll minimize the impact, but it's not really reasonable from a mining company's perspective under the mining law of 1872. So you have to allow a reasonable access to to develop the claim, and so that means uh, that. There are going to be um, the Forest Service just has to disclose those pretty big impacts. There's one other thing that's really interesting too, and that is um, when a uh, the Forest Service is, is looking at alternatives. There, um, they have to disclose these impacts, and here's what it could be. They have to try to minimize and mitigate them, but it really is up. A lot of it, the discretion is up to the mining company in terms of. Uh, what they're willing to do and willing to forego. Um, in many cases, the ultimate decision maker um, is the mining company itself um, or their investors who say, wow, you know what, I could go big and put it all in this, this, this one, but you know, it might be high risk, it might be controversial, I don't really don't know if I want to be associated with that project. Um, maybe we can go with this lighter uh, on the land alternative over here. So in some ways, um, it's actually the mining company uh, that um, if they're an environmentally responsible company, they will actually um, uh, exercise the discretion they have and uh, add some either design features or rework their plan of operations so that it is um, uh, lower risk uh, to the environment. We've seen that happen before where because of public concerns uh, and uh, 
the results of the analysis of the environmental impact statement, they go, well, that's a lot of, of, of risk. And also that means a very, uh, perhaps a more expensive bond if we're going to try to, you know, if that's a likely to, to uh, if there's a high risk of water contamination. So maybe we're going to scale things back a bit and try things a little differently. Um, the Forest Service can't force those on them. Uh, in fact, in some cases, the mining company will throw out ideas and design practices that, frankly, the Forest Service hadn't heard of yet that are you know, cutting edge, best management practices, really novel design features. So in many cases, the, it's the mining companies that um, have the ability to either you know, raise the bar and do things more responsibly or just lowball it and go for the minimal standard uh, and, and we'll see. One thing that's really remarkable though under the mining law of 1872, let's say you or I wanted to go up there and um, uh, onto this stretch of, of national forest that we all own and uh, do some type of permitted activity. Let's say we wanna um, have a timber sale up there, uh, cut some wood. Let's say we wanted to go ahead and uh, create a new ATV trail up there or a cool switchback mountain bike flow trail, all that. Uh, maybe just a, a set up a couple campsites, a dispersed new rec site up there, or some uh, great little hiking trails. The Forest Service would shut us down. We wouldn't even get in the door because their forest plan says, wait a minute now, this is an area that is so critically sensitive that it is uh, an area for restoration. And you can't build a, a, a recreational uh, trail up there without demonstrating there's some significant restoration offset. Mm -hmm. And so the, the restoration benefits have to far outweigh any additional footprint up there. So if you just want to go up there and build a nice flow track, not going to happen. If you wanted to go up there and uh, have a nice little glamping yurt you want to set up up <laughs> there, not going to happen. Uh, but in if fact, you want to blow off the top of a mountain to find gold, you can? You can because of <laughs> the 1872 mining law. So this is remarkable in that very modest things that many forests uh, entertain and allow happen. The, the Forest Service is under very strict orders uh, from their forest plan, from the, uh, the uh, because of the salmon steelhead up there and bull trout and water quality issues to be very cautious about what happens and make sure there's a strong restoration component. Um, and that's written very clearly in the forest plan um, that was developed with public feed, feedback and input. But under the mining law of 1872, they get a pass hmm. and they go straight to, um, no, we, can, we want to develop the site and um, the Forest Service can put some conditions on it, um, but they can't say no. You know, this, I want to take this opportunity to really stress, like, you know, this is probably because of my role here at ICL, but you've mentioned this a couple times. There's, you know, the Forest Service can make decisions, but, but the mining company really um, kind of holds the final decision. And, you know, the public pressure can really influence that. And the, I think, you know, just maybe this is, I think this is intuitive, maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, if the public wasn't paying attention there wouldn't be that pressure to go to really raise the bar and be as protective as possible. So to me, it seems so critical that, that the public is involved, really stressing their concerns and, and, you know, just letting them know like, Hey, we are watching. Like we care about this area very deeply. You need to do 
as, as best as you can. Otherwise, you're going to get that bad PR that, that no one wants. And kind of to that end, with where we are with Midas, you know, what's what's the opportunities for the public to get involved? These Say someone's, they've just heard you talk about, you know, their, their ATV trail got shut down, but a mine is going to go in there, and now they're furious. Where do we direct them to? How do we get them plugged in? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is the, the fantastic thing about, frankly, these being public lands that belong to everyone. Um, if this were, you know, state property or... Um, private property, whatever, we would have no idea of what was going on back there. Um, but we get a say in this, to the extent that, that the Forest Service can, can uh, has that decision space. And we at least get the information about what's going on, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, and to their credit, uh, Midas Gold, I'll just put the, the, the tagline here, you know, our favorite mining company with uh, our least favorite project, you know, they've been uh, really good about offering tours on their site, they have open open office hours. You know, we've met with them uh, numerous times, and um, and so they've been really open about this stuff. One of the challenges, though, and I think that they they you know uh, bought onto the restore the site idea so uh, uh, fervently that when they're out giving a tour on the site, their primary focus is on the restoration, what it'll look like after fourteen years, and when the plants are going back, all these things. What they have tended to gloss over, though, is the fact that this area is going to be converted into a industrial uh, uh, heavy impact zone with haul roads, mining pits, uh, um, tailings, waste rock piles, etc. And in fact, the whole acreage, if you look at it, um, uh, I think you're going to have over just under 2,000 acres uh, that would be totally disturbed. And so that's with the access roads and tailings and all these things. Um, and 42% of that is, uh, only 42% of that was disturbed previously. Um, and 58% is basically pristine areas. Hmm. And actually out of the 42% that they are disturbing, I'm using the term lightly, like they're going to be you know, totally turning upside down. Out of that 42%, some of that was already reclaimed hmm. using public money, and they have a nice little meandering trout stream they put back in there. There's still arsenic leaching out of the uh, some of the uh, um, tailings piles up there, but they've done uh, uh, already put some restoration effort. They have to undo that. Um, but if you look at it, you know, over half the acreage is uh, in areas that are pristine. Um, now, I have to give, again, them, them credit for rehandling and saying we're going to properly manage this old tailings and waste rock that is continuing to leach uh, heavy metals and is a real problem. Uh, the problem is in doing that, they're also going way outside kind of what I would think of as the restoration batteries and say, and we're going to go uh, uh, dig you know, these three open pits and we're going to go ahead and put the tailings here in a pristine area and fill up these side valleys uh, with uh, waste rock piles. So um, there is a restoration nugget you know, there, but there's a lot of other, uh, from our perspective, uh, new impacts and new disturbance, an area that frankly, you know, we'd have a hard time building a, a flow track for a mountain bike in. Hmm. Here's a question too, which is, 
a little off topic, but just popped into my mind. When they are mining for gold, so this company, Midas, goes in, pulls up a bunch of gold, and then that's just theirs, right? Then they just sell it and profit off well, of it. Even though it was on public land, so they tear up public land to pull something out and sell it at a profit. Is that right? It is, yes. That is exactly right. Um, what's even more ironic is that if um, these are public lands owned by everyone, and for other extractive industries, uh, and again, I drove here in my car today. You know, mm-hmm. I've got a yeah. smartphone. I'll use metals and minerals. Um, and uh, But uh, oil and gas companies uh, uh, that do extract materials from public lands pay a royalty, a little bit of a kickback saying, okay, you know, here's an 8% or 10% of our profits uh, go to back to the uh, uh, taxpayers. And so some of those can be used to fund land and water conservation fund or other things. Um, in the case of hard rock mining, there's no royalties paid out. So a foreign mining company can uh, set up a shell U.S. company and they can then go ahead and stake a mining claim, develop a site under 1872, and take out literally billions of dollars of either strategic metals or precious metals, gold, whatever, uh, and take it out. Uh, now, to be fair, they will give you a job so you can help them dig it up. <laughs> so I'll give you a well-paying job so you can uh, 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 help us take this you know, billions of dollars of gold out. And then when you want it back, um, we'll sell it to you. And so, or to someone else. So the great irony is the big push to put antimony and other metals as a strategic metal um, for critical for national defense would, you know, prioritize, the, would fast track permitting and, and make it easier to, to, you know, identify and secure and extract those deposits. The irony that in many cases it's, foreign mining companies that are doing that. Um, and so they're perfectly strategically secure where they are. No one's going to sneak out in the middle of the night and take out you know, this, this, uh, this ore. Um, but we're willing to bend over backwards uh, and uh, you know, put our watersheds at risk uh, to help a foreign mining company take out gold, strategic metals, uh, for free. And we get you know, some jobs helping them do it. And some of those jobs are really well paying. We get good taxes for the communities from this. Um, and then we get the privilege of buying it back from them. So something out there is really a little, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. Would you say it's the mining law of 1872? I would say it's the mining law of 1872. <laughs> um, and along with those lines, um, you know, there is a, a growing effort to, to look at the mining law of 1872 and, and really reform it and bring it into the, the 21st century. Along those lines, um, a royalty would make a lot of sense. There's over 500,000 abandoned mines in the West. Um, the cleanup cost, if you actually were to go to these old adits and mine shafts and leaky uh, um, acid mine drainage uh, uh, deposits and things, um, it would cost you know somewhere between 30 and, and 70 billion dollars to clean that up. Um, and if you had a royalty program, uh, from uh, the responsible development of, of mineral resources, uh, then, like they do with oil and gas, um, that would help fund some of those key efforts there. Um, one of the other things with 1872 is uh, it'd be great to figure out a way 
to, um, short of declaring an area wilderness, to say, hey, maybe this mining isn't the highest and best use here. If you can't, you know, have a yurt there, if you can't actually have, a, a, you know, a, a trail uh, going up the high side of the hill there, uh, why would you allow that hill to be turned inside out? Um, so there's a, a, an issue of can we actually give the local communities most affected by these projects a greater say in what happens upstream of them. And so what is the process for fixing the mining law? I mean, or, or and I know that we're running a little low on time, but I'd, I'm curious about if there's going to be opportunity for people to say, yeah, great that question. totally doesn't make sense. We should change that. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And there well, is actually... But, sorry, yeah. before, um, we, we're coming up on the 30 minutes, so I... Um, I'm going to pause this here, and we're, we're going to create a part three of Midas because we're having a great discussion, and I don't want to lose any of this. So thank you, everyone, for listening in. As always, Wild Out Hill Podcast, proudly supported by, by all of ICL's members. We really couldn't do this without you. So thank you so much. And as always, if you enjoy listening to the Wild Idaho Podcast, we'd love to hear from you about topic ideas that you're interested in or share it with your friends so we can get a few more listeners. Rate us on iTunes. Um, subscribe to us on your favorite pop podcasting app. I think mostly iTunes and SoundCloud, but you yeah. know, either of those great options. Um, and we always love hearing from you. So shoot us a note. All right. Thank you again. And we will see you guys for part three of Midas Gold.